I have epilepsy, but it doesn't have me. It made me who I am today because of the experiences and the people that I've met on my journey. And I think it's made me a stronger person, but it doesn't control me. Not like it did when I was a teenager. Blind Spot is a place where we strive to uncover the truth behind the headlines and to present the stories that are hidden from sight. I'm Rhys, the director and co-founder of The Blind Spot. Welcome to episode 5 of our podcast and the second part in our short series on epilepsy. In the last episode I spoke with Yasmin and her mum Kate about living with the condition. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's recommended as not only do Yasmin and Kate tell their story eloquently and impart a great deal of knowledge and wisdom, this episode will build upon their discussion. Whereas the previous conversation was with a young woman with epilepsy and her mother, this episode changes focus to focus on a mother who has epilepsy and her partner and the effect of the medication on their children, specifically fetal anticonvulsant syndrome. So before we begin, a few facts that are worth reiterating about epilepsy. Epilepsy is the tendency to have recurrent seizures, there are more than 40 different types of seizure and a person may have more than one type. Epilepsy is a neurological condition. Epilepsy can affect anyone, at any age and from any walk of life. In the UK, 600,000 people have epilepsy and every day, 87 people are diagnosed with it. Hello Janet and Steve. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the Blind Spot Podcast. Thank you for having us. So, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Janet. I'm 47 years old and I'm married to Steve and have five children. And I'm Steve. Um, I'm 57 years old and uh, married to Janet, strangely enough. And we have five children between us. And Janet, you have epilepsy? Yeah, I was um, diagnosed with epilepsy at 14, so I've had it for 33 years. And as an adult and mother today, how does your life revolve around it? Well, I used to be in denial of having it because my medication controls the seizures, so I'd forget that actually I had it. But the medication that I take for the seizures has caused autism in my two youngest children so actually I've become much more aware of having it and the impact of having it with day-to-day life and the difficulties that they have now and the um, side effects that I have from the medication because the longer I've been on the medication the more the side effects have affected me. And you Steve? I had known that Janet was epileptic Obviously, since we met, it was one of the things that she said when we got together. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the main impact, I suppose, over the last 18 years or so have been dealing with the the effects on the children and stuff, but also trying to deal with the difficulties that Janet's faced in terms of the epilepsy as well, because... The medications had quite a few side effects and those have made things progressively more difficult for her to deal with and cope with, as well as having to deal with her epilepsy itself and the effects on the children. 
And as well as you yourself feeling the effects of epilepsy and living with the condition, you are also, both of you, very involved with organisations, charities, you have a blog. What have you been involved with over the last few years? Well, first of all, I set up um, an autistic support group in the local area for a way of not just giving support, but gaining support and meeting other people who have children with autism. And then I found out that actually it wasn't just autism um, that my kids had, but actually fetal anticonvulsant syndrome. That meant that I then wanted to obviously know more about that condition and I got in touch with an organisation, which is a national charity, the Organisation for Anticonvulsant Syndrome. That resulted in me becoming treasurer for the charity, and I remained on there for about eight years. Steve came on board shortly after as education officer, and then he went on to become chairman of the charity. And we were involved in various things from support for families to campaigning for change and awareness up in London. And we also set up a, a new group called the Fetal Anticonvulsant Trust, which was solely set up for campaigning and going to meetings in Parliament and the Department of Health to try and get things changed and try and get support for the children affected. Because as adults, we know that support for adults, there's not a lot of it. And the likelihood of a lot of these children being able to go out, get a job, be independent is quite slim. So we were trying to seek some way of ensuring a future for the children. I also got involved with a disabled charity over in Chichester, which is a play scheme for children with disabilities and was treasurer for them for a few years. And Steve and I both became members of West Sussex Parent Carer Forum as well and were working with them as well. So we've, we've been involved with a few. So I think it's safe to say that both of you know a lot about epilepsy. Yes, a fair bit. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we've had a lot of involvement with geneticists and neurologists and different research projects over the years when we were involved with the organisation. So yes, we've learnt a lot more than I knew when I started. So there was a time when you didn't know anything about epilepsy. Can you yeah. take us back to that time? I was 14 and, as you say, I'd never even heard of it. I went out one day on my bike and I, I still, to this day, feel that actually I'm very lucky because I had been out on my push bike on the main road and I happened to just stop off at my auntie's house to visit her and I was stood in her kitchen and she was making us a drink and suddenly my head started turning to the left and then I started getting tunnel vision. Everything looked like it was getting further and further away as it was just becoming more and more of a pin that I could see. She was talking to me but I couldn't respond. I was trying to tell her what was happening but nothing was coming out and the next thing I know I came to on the floor and I remember waking up and I was obviously sort of not really fully with it 
and I woke up and my mum and my auntie were sat at the kitchen table having a cup of tea and I still remember clearly thinking ah this is a normal morning I always sleep on the kitchen floor and they're just having their their morning cuppa and I went back to sleep and came to I don't know how much longer later but it was only when I came to the second time it dawned on me that actually I'm not supposed to be laying on the kitchen floor and it wasn't normal that's when I felt very scared because I didn't know what had happened didn't know why it had happened it was all very frightening and new fortunately my mum was a nurse so she did and she was able to reassure me took me home and then we called the doctor and it went from there and was it immediately apparent that it was epilepsy or did it take the second seizure no it was I think diagnosed straight away from what I can remember because of my mum's description to the GP and because of my history of febrile convulsions I think it was given straight away but as far as I can remember I had a second seizure quite quickly anyway and you mentioned febrile convulsions? Yeah, they're, um, they're convulsions that you can have as a child, usually caused by a high temperature, uh, normally in the smaller child. And a lot of children may have these, but it doesn't mean that they're then going to go on to have full-blown epilepsy. A lot of kids will have them and then never have another seizure again, but they're known as febrile convulsions. The diagnosis came quickly. And what happened after that? I apologise, my memory is very sketchy. I started having more seizures quite regularly and they would always be ones that I would fall unconscious. I remember having to go to the hospital. I was referred for brain scans um, and they couldn't find any scarring on the brain so it was put down as a, an epilepsy with no known cause. They kept trying different types of medication and it was two years before they settled on the dose and the right meds that actually controlled the seizures. But I did go through a time where one of the medications they put me on, I was having several seizures a day. And I remember I've always kept a diary and in that period of time I've got a blank space for three weeks because... In between the seizures, I wasn't really with it enough to put anything down or remember anything. So they then switched the meds again and tried something different. But it meant that my my life changed drastically because I'd always been sort of quite outgoing at school. I was involved in a lot of sort of drama groups. I used to play the trombone and I would cycle to catch the train to school. And I did a lot of athletics and sports, but all of that had to stop because I wasn't safe to ride a push bike anymore. I didn't want to be on the stage because I always felt I could have a seizure on the stage and then everybody would see me and I didn't want people to see me having a seizure. I stopped doing the sports because I used to get the shakes a lot with physical activity. I ended up sitting out of a lot of PE lessons to start with. I did go back to them. Um, I stopped going into assemblies because I couldn't cope with all of the people around. I remember there would be periods of time at school where I would just be in the sick room or I would be off school completely because I just wasn't feeling very well or I'd be having absences. 
and looking back we think that there was an indicator that the epilepsy was there because my school reports I'd always done very very well academically and I'd always been sort of enjoying school and focusing and sort of I think it was the year leading up to my first major fit school reports were saying that I wasn't concentrating in class and I was not listening and we now think that perhaps I was having petty mouths and they were affecting my ability in the classroom. And petty mouths are? Um, absences where it can be anything from a second upwards where you just literally just lose consciousness but you could carry on functioning you could carry on doing what you're doing, but your brain, it's almost like it switches off for a second or two and then switches back on again. But you're not falling down or anything. You're, you're still carrying on. Sometimes it can be you stop and you might have a blank look and then you carry on again. But normally you're not aware that you've had them or you're having them. It's only other people that would be able to say. So you're 14 when you when you have your first seizure. What year are we at then? 1983, because it was the year of my 15th birthday. Back then, how was the understanding of epilepsy? There wasn't really any. There was no sort of internet back then, so you couldn't go on the internet and look things up. I remember being given a leaflet or two from the hospital, and that was it. There was no support groups or any organisation I could get in touch with. And I think I probably didn't ask my mum enough questions because as a nurse, I'm sure she would have probably been able to give me a, mo a lot more information. But I did go to the libraries and I used to read and just look at what was in the books in the libraries. And of course, you read a book and nine times out of ten, you get the worst case scenario. And also back then, you only really had three main seizures recognised. And because I was having the tonoclonic ones, which is the grand mal, I felt I was worst case scenario and what was in those books was what was going to happen to me. So I felt very sort of scared of my future, I suppose, and what was going to happen. How did people treat you during that period? Well, some of my friends from school actually thought I'd left school because I didn't really tell people about the epilepsy. I just sort of hid away. For a long time, I didn't say anything other than to my closest friends. And then when I was in town, I had a seizure once. It was outside a shop and they dragged me. I, w I wasn't conscious, but they dragged me into the shop and hid me under the clothing rail because they didn't want me on view outside their shop. Things like that just make you feel even more ashamed that you have epilepsy and that it's not acceptable to have epilepsy and that people think you're weird or to be avoided. You know, there was an experience when I told someone I had epilepsy when I used to work in this warehouse. It was one of the customers. He didn't know what to say, so he made a joke of it. Uh, you know, oh, well, if we see someone on the floor shaking, we'll know it's you then. You know, and then you think, well, I'm not going to bother saying anything. Then it's... Um, People don't know what to say and you don't want people to treat you differently. Whereas now I'm quite happy to pe tell people I'm epileptic and I've done radio interviews for
for epilepsy action, promoting that you don't have to give up, that having epilepsy doesn't mean that you can't have a life, because over the years I've learned that actually you can. And even though I felt as a teenager my life was over, actually that's not true at all. You listened to the previous podcast that I did with um, Yasmin and her mum, Kate. Listening to that and then comparing it to your experience back in the, in the 80s, what stood out for you? Well, there were some things that were similar and it, it made me want to cry listening to some of the things that she was saying because I could relate to them. But I think it was brilliant for her that she had so much sort of support with her friends around her that she was still able to go out and do the things that she should be doing as a teenager knowing that she had people there to help her if anything happened. I did go out but I didn't go out much because I went to school 10 miles away from where I lived so to get to anybody it was always a case of being able to go on a bus or a train which I wasn't able to do on my own in case I had a seizure I was too scared to do that so in a way I, I guess I cut myself off because of my own anxieties. I had friends at school who were there for me at school and I might go back to their house with them but I didn't join in with all the things that they would do when they would meet up on weekends and go out as groups for quite a long time because I was too scared to. Over the years, I've learned that actually it's okay to say I have epilepsy and it's okay to talk about it. Actually, by talking about it, that helps make people more aware and to teach people what having epilepsy actually means and that it's not the scary thing that people make it out to be. It's not something to be ashamed of. Jan's attitude to it has certainly changed over the years. So she's become much more confident about things and hopefully more independent than she was. When I first met her, she was quite sort of shy and retiring. I don't think you'd really class her that as now, to be honest. I still get anxious. No, going she gets anxious places, and, and panicky about things, but that's not quite the same. So she's a bit more confident about going out and doing things still find it difficult going into sort of busy places and things don't you? Mm, I've had I've been taken into hospital a few times with suspected heart attacks and that which have actually been um, major panic attacks where I've got stressed. One of the hardest things is watching Jan sort of trying to 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 cope with it on a daily basis because although she's not having the grand miles she's still getting the effects. I mean, every day she's sort of shaky or she gets very tired. The medication has its own issues in terms of side effects from that because she's been on the medication and it's an older type of medication as well. The, the side effects on that are quite significant. So she struggles a lot with things like her joints. Um, so that makes her mobility very difficult. And that's quite disconcerting obviously because she's struggling to deal with that and she's sort of in constant pain all the time and that's just getting worse and it, it's difficult because obviously the longer she's on it the more those side effects are going to have an impact but she's been struggling for years trying to come to terms with whether or not to actually try changing the medication because obviously that has its own risks 
changing it to one of the newer types of medication doesn't mean to say that she would necessarily be seizure free. She hasn't had a major seizure for quite a number of years now, but she's always worried about it. It's always there in the background as a possibility. And I know it's something that does concern her quite a lot. It's really difficult knowing what to do for the best, because if you change, you may not be able to drive again for quite a while for a start. And that's difficult because that has difficulties in trying to get around. She's not able to walk very far at all at the moment. Having the, the, the change of medication, there's no guarantee that she would then be seizure-free anyway. And all of the medications, whichever one they are, all have their own range of side effects to some degree or another because they're all messing about with your brain chemistry. So what medication are you on currently, Janet? I'm on epinutin is also known as phenytoin and I'm on epilim chrono which is sodium valproate. I've managed to reduce the dosage on the epilim but I'm still on the same level of dose for the epinutin. Um, I have tried to come down on that and I don't know whether it was anxieties or epilepsy but I started getting the shakes a lot and so it was decided to just keep it as it was you know, as Steve said, I've been told that there are more modern drugs now that I could go on to. But then you think, well, all of them are going to have side effects to a degree because of the nature of, you know, the whole idea is that they're there to change your brain, to change the, the way your brain works, to stop the seizures. So they're all going to have some kind of effect. Um, there's also the risk that the seizures could come back. And at the moment, I'm able to drive, go out and do things with my family, go out and do things on my own. I've got my own business. I have a social life, sort of. I go swimming, which I couldn't swim when I was having the grand mouse. And I couldn't go out on a push bike and I've started going out on my bike again. And all of those things could potentially stop if I started having seizures again because of the risks. So it's really really hard to know the best way forward and I've been told as well that because I've been on the drugs for so long now the damage that they've done is unlikely to be reversible it's just the fact that obviously staying on them means that it's getting worse so it's a bit of better the devil you know than the one you don't but it's not something that you forget about you every day you think actually what if what if I just changed? What if I tried to do something a bit different? Would that improve things? But there's always that fear. Even though I haven't had a grand mal for 31 years, you don't forget. You don't forget the fear of going out, the fear of not being able to have privacy because if you lock a door and then you have a seizure, people can't get to you. It's not something that goes away. And with your medication, it also had an effect on your children. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? When I became pregnant with my first son, that would have been 28 years ago, we went in, I remember my mum and I went in and specifically asked, what are the risks? And my GP wrote away to get information and he said that there was a small risk of hair, lip and cleft palate or spina bifida 
and the only thing that they did say is that I wouldn't be able to feed myself. That in itself made me feel a bit of a failure at the time that I couldn't do that when everybody else was. They were the only risks that I was told about. So when he was born and he had no physical problems, I felt that I was very, very lucky. And then when I had my daughter two and a half years later, again, no physical problems. And so I felt quite happy and lucky that I had two healthy children. And then I got divorced, was on my own for a bit and met Steve. And we ended up having two more children. I was a little bit worried because I thought, I'm really, really lucky. I've got two healthy kids, but I have got two healthy kids, so this is going to be okay. Our first boy was born and he was born with breathing difficulties. He had a collapsed lung and a floppy larynx. Other than that, once he came out of Skaboo and came home, we thought, he's okay, there's no spina bifida, there's no cleft palate, hair lip, so it's okay. As he developed, he had um, sleep apnea from birth, but it didn't, didn't go away. He had a few sort of problems with a lot of crying and things like that. And then when it came to going to toddler groups, we didn't know why, but he struggled with the others around him and he used to push the other children away. He couldn't cope with noise and things like that. Then we had our, our last son and he was the same. He had sleep apnea from birth and he just cried constantly. I mean, he cried more than Kyle. Big difference with Kyle and Cameron is I was told it would be okay to feed them and I said but I'd been told not to and they said no there's been lots of research in America and it's fine it's safe and you can do that so I did and that in itself makes me feel guilty because now if you look on the medication leaflets it tells you not to so I feel just by trying to be a better mum I've actually made things worse because they were exposed to the drug for longer. They had speech delay, both of them. And when they started nursery, both of them were used for trainee nursery nurses because they had special needs. Kyle had his first surgery at eight months for exploratory surgery to see if there was a reason, a blockage with the breathing. And then when he was two, he had to have surgery to have his tonsils removed because he'd had constant infections and he'd had the febrile convulsions because of ear infections and the high temperatures. So he had his tonsils removed and adenoids removed and grommets inserted because it turned out he had glue ear. So for the first couple of years, he wouldn't have been able to hear properly. So Kyle was going through all of that and Cameron just was very very difficult he wouldn't settle at all and I became very isolated because going out with one baby that was difficult I could cope with but after having Cameron trying to go to toddler groups it was too difficult because I'd have a toddler that couldn't cope with the other kids and would push them away and I had a baby that constantly cried and I couldn't deal with both of them so I then developed postnatal depression 
and I didn't leave the house unaccompanied for probably nigh on three years other than to do the school run um, because I just didn't feel able to. So that in itself brings its own problems because you become isolated and it's only as the boys got older things became more apparent with ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia. There were bowel and bladder problems as well. That was from a young age. We'd had hospital trips with Cameron with severe constipation from just a few months old. And he used to have the community nurse come out. Things became apparent that actually they weren't as okay as we thought. But it was only when they were sort of five and six years of age, or maybe a little bit older, that we actually found out about the fetal anticonvulsant syndrome. And that was because a friend saw an article in a newspaper and brought the clipping round. And our daughter as well, as she's got older, developed problems where she's got Crohn's disease, hypermobility, and at the age of 25 is now struggling with a lot of joint pain. A lot of the time there are things that aren't apparent until they're older and you can compare to others. But I know that for the first six years probably, I would wake up every morning and Steve wouldn't be in the bed because the boys would wake up constantly through the night and because the drugs that I take for my epilepsy make me very drowsy and I need my sleep to lower the risk of seizures. Steve wouldn't wake me up other than if I was doing a feed and he would get them and he would bring them down here and then I would come down and find Steve and both boys downstairs on the sofas in the morning because it was the only way that the three of them got any sleep. Yeah, about the first six years. We didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew. Every few months, some different thing would pop up medical-wise with the kids. We worked it out at one stage, and on average, for that period of time, we were sort of having doctors or hospital visits two to three times a week, all of the time. Uh -huh. And that was on a, an average week. The hospital in the children's ward and things actually gave us a parking voucher so that we didn't have to actually go there. We could just park around the back and just leave the car there and didn't need to make appointments and things. We could just go straight in with the boys. We were in there so regularly that we more or less lived over there at one stage. Well, they remembered me ten years later when I had to go back with Jade. And, you know, with the sleep stuff, what would happen is the boys would gag and choke when they were asleep and then wake themselves up. Obviously, because they were so small and didn't know what was going on, they'd get into a panic, and then it would take anything up to an hour each time to sort of settle them back down again. And in the meantime, the other one would have done the same thing. So you're sort of going between one room and the other. So like Jan said, it was much easier for me to just bring them down here, have one on each sofa, and settle them down on there. And at least that way I could keep going between the two, and it wasn't disturbing Janet or the other kids, you know, the older kids. So at least they could get some sleep. Probably for about the first six or seven years, I used to get about six or seven hours sleep on a good week. That was while I was working, so I was actually working as a secondary school teacher at the time. So I was teaching full time and then coming home in the evening, doing the rest of the schoolwork that I couldn't do at school and then looking after the kids through the night. And quite often I'd go sort of three or four days without any sleep at all. 
and I've now got into the sort of routine where I still have sleep problems now so most nights I probably get an hour and a half two hours in bits and that's it I've had sleep therapy and uh, relaxation meditation and lord knows what and I just yeah, but don't that, know how to sleep anymore <laughs> that in itself had its impact on Steve's health and he then had a breakdown and had to come out of teaching because he wasn't able to cope anymore because the amount of sleep just wasn't enough for anybody to function on let alone what he was doing around that so that had a knock-on effect on him as well you then got the older children as well and you're trying your hardest to be there for them and be able to do things with them but then you feel like they're missing out on so much because so much has had to be devoted on dealing with the health issues and everything else that you're not able and because of behavioural issues as well you're not able to do a nice family trip out because it wouldn't end up being a nice family trip out so we did very little as a family as a mum that in itself you feel guilty for what you're not able to do for your children that don't have the difficulties. Speaking to them now, they felt very much that they weren't as important. You have to deal with each issue as it arises. It's just very, very difficult. I think we both felt that we let the older ones down quite a lot because it was really difficult trying to juggle everything and there's just not enough time available to actually be able to spend the time that you want to with everybody. We both sort of regret well, that, but we didn't really have a choice at We the did time. have other stuff going on as well around that. Jade was in and out of hospital through her teenage years. They were diagnosing her with all sorts, but they never actually did the full investigations until she was an adult, which was when they diagnosed her with Crohn's and gave her appropriate medication. She also fell downstairs, I think it was just after Kyle was born, and she damaged the ligaments and tendons in her wrists and her ankles. Dale had a severe head injury when he was 14 yeah. at school, and he ended up with post-concussion syndrome and was home off school for a few months. Jade ended up being out of school at the age of 11 for six months with stress. So it was having a knock-on effect across everything, really. I mean, Simon had his own difficulties to deal with as well. So it rippled out across the whole family and did affect everybody. We got very isolated as well because the friends that we had around just sort of gradually drifted away. As, you know, they just sort of found it quite difficult being around. the community around. as yeah. well, you're very ostracised because your children are different. So you'd be the one in the playground that would be stood on your own. Your child would be the one that wouldn't be invited to birthday parties. You end up feeling very alone and very much sort of on the outside of things as an effect of all of that. And then in between all that, I broke my foot when Kyle was six weeks old. A few years after that, I had to have an operation on my Achilles tendon because of problems with that one. And then a few years after that, the other Achilles tendon snapped and I found out that the reason I was having problems with my Achilles was one of the drugs that I take causes tightening of the tendons in the lower limbs. So that again had a, a further impact on my mobility and I was in a wheelchair for three months. 
it's all things that you don't even link but when you actually look into things I mean I think it was later down the line that I found out that it was actually the epinutin that causes problems with the tendons in the lower limbs so I've been in and out of physio and hospital over the years as well I've also had problems with blood clots and things like that and the epilim can cause problems with the blood just focusing purely on say Kyle and Cameron Kyle and Cameron were diagnosed with fetal valproate syndrome by um, one of the top geneticists in the country. But because there's no definitive test, all they can say is on the balance of probabilities they have, because you can't have a blood test for it. There's, you know, all they can do is rule everything else out because as babies they had the facial features as well. There are certain facial features which again we didn't know about at the time we recognized something but we didn't know what it was and most children will grow out of those as they get older so when we went for the appointments we had to take photographs of them when they were babies toddlers just so that the geneticist could see what they look like and the, the geneticist looks at their history the repeated ear infections the speech delay all of those sorts of things are indicative of it being down to the medication. There's a massive spectrum of difficulties that it causes and you don't have to have all of them for them to make the diagnosis because each child is affected differently according to the medication that the mother is on and also you've got to take into account the genetics of each person. None of the children will be the same but they will be very similar. And one thing that we noted when we were working for Oaks, the organisation, was that we actually had a board and we would ask parents to send in, if they were happy to, photographs of their children when they were younger. You'd put all the photos up on the board for when we were raising awareness things. You'd think they were all part of a family. You would see some photos where you'd think, that looks just like my baby. And even when they're slightly older, the similarities in the faces of so many of these children was very striking and very marked. Women that could have children and families in the future and pregnant women are you know, still being given the medication. The one thing we've always said is that we feel women should be informed of what the possibilities could be and what the risks are so that they can make an informed choice for some women, I know some women that have said they would have chosen not to have a family because the effect it's had on their life, they would have rather carried on with how they'd been living with the career that they'd chosen. I wouldn't change my kids for the world. I love them to pieces. I would have had my family anyway. But I think that women should be given the opportunity if they want to try a different drug and see if another drug control, can control the seizures because sodium valproate has the highest incident of risk between 40 and 60% now of there being some kind of disability, be it neurodevelopmental or physical. Whereas some of the newer epileptic drugs are 0.08% of risk. So there's a huge difference. You know, I would just advise anybody that wants to have a family who's epileptic to speak to the neurologist about all the options of the drugs 
and if epilim is the only one that you can take then to get the dose down as low as you possibly can before coming pregnant and to try and have it as a single drug as well if possible one thing that is very very important to say though is under no circumstances should anybody ever just stop taking their medication if you've got concerns about anything then they really need to go and speak to a neurologist or gp or epilepsy nurse ever just take stop taking the medication because that could be very very serious just stopping is more likely to bring on a seizure than anything else so it is something that needs to be done under the supervision of your doctor and it's better to go in and discuss moving to another drug or just seeing what the options are but yeah. not and, to stop and just try and think about planning ahead really if you can you know and if, if you don't have any other choice then it's just being aware that this is possible and that's what could happen so that you're mentally prepared what are good places to go or things to get involved with if you are being affected in some way by epilepsy or or want to be supportive of somebody who is there are various sites that you can go to now i mean if you're on facebook you could type in the name of a drug or epilepsy or even the syndrome that the children have got you will probably find there will be a group for it there will be someone on there who's taking the same medication or having the same difficulties as you and you can connect with them and they could be anywhere in the world but it, at the end of the day it doesn't matter you're all feeling the same way you're all taking the same thing and struggling with the same day-to-day -day issues there are people that i talk to over in america canada new zealand and so the benefits to that is that if you're up in the middle of the night and you're struggling you can go online and invariably there'll be someone else to talk to as well because it's a different time frame also there are so many online forums for epilepsy now i'm on a, a couple of them where i've joined and i'm a part of a team and i can just go on and they'll have each day how's your day been today and you just put in you could just put in you know a like it or a thumbs up or a not so good or you can type in there oh this has happened and that's happened and invariably you will get responses from people within your area or with a similar thing who will come back and talk to you so that you don't feel alone there's also more support groups actually out in the community for us there's one that's literally started last month in Bognor and there's never been one as local before and that gives the opportunity once a month to meet up with other people affected by epilepsy in a, a relaxed setting to just have a chat about day-to-day -day stuff or if anybody's got any suggestions or ideas then they can be shared so there's lots of options now for getting in touch with other people and getting and giving support even if you can't leave the home you can talk to others and even reading blogs and writing blogs there's quite a few women that do the same as me and blog about their experiences with epilepsy and with fetal anticonvulsant syndrome that in itself a is informing others and b it's therapeutic it helps get it out but one thing i've always i wrote an article on it 
and I very much believe in is that I have epilepsy but it doesn't have me it made me who I am today because of the experiences and the people that I've met on my journey and I think it's made me a stronger person but it doesn't control me not like it did when I was a teenager this is it's been quite a sober conversation which is unusual because i i know you two and and you know, <laughs> you know, and coming here is normally fun and you know humorous and chaotic yeah, um, we do chaos big time yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i don't know whether that has come across in the conversation because it is such a serious topic mm. to talk about and you know there is a lot of pain in your story and difficulty and bad luck meeting you you remain very positive at least from what I see. <laughs> we try to. Um, so how, how have you done that? Well, because we've had to deal with it ourselves all the way through it. Um, we haven't really had much in the way of... Until very, very recently, we've had no support whatsoever from anywhere. If you don't get on and deal with it yourself, then nobody else is going to. Yeah, there's no point in getting down. There's no point in being sad because it doesn't change anything. I try to look on the brighter side of things. It's like a friend once said to me, it's not a case of the glass being half full or half empty. It's a case of just being glad to have a glass. You know, I always think of that and I think actually, yes, you know, things could be so much worse and we should appreciate what we do have. Be thankful that things aren't worse than they are. And we do have a lot of fun together. I mean, we try to see the older children when we can, but obviously they have their own families now. But we do always have family get-togethers. And we have regular gaming evenings with Kyle and Cameron. And we have a laugh because life's too short to not. Obviously, sometimes it's a mask. Sometimes you don't want people to see, so you'll go out of the house and if people come in, you'll smile when actually you just want to cry. And we do have times where it's really, really difficult and we find it hard to see the positives. We usually get through those, don't we, and then come back out again. Yeah, it's quite often a bit of a struggle, but I usually sort of adopt the approach to I'm sort of quite a practical person. I just like to sort of get on and try and do what I can, really. And I spend a lot of time running around trying to sort out issues and problems for the kids. It affects everybody around us as well. You, you just do it because if you don't do it, nobody else is going to. You know, like Jan said, in the, in the meantime, you just want to try and make things as enjoyable for everybody involved if you can. There are a lot of families and a lot of people that I met or spoke to through the charity who their lives are so much harder. There's one lady who, through taking sodium valproate in pregnancy, the epilim, her daughter is the same age as Kyle, but every day for her is a gift because every day she doesn't know whether her daughter is going to survive through the day because she has epilepsy, autism, hydrocephalus she's non-verbal in a wheelchair unable to do anything for herself and has the mental age of about three things could be so much worse when you meet people like that you have to really take stock and think about you know actually we're lucky
thank you so much, Janet and Steve, for inviting me into your home and telling your story in such an open and honest way. It's worth repeating some of the organisations mentioned in the interview. Oaks, the charity Janet and Steve were involved with running for many years, can be found at oakscharity.org. That's O-A-C-S charity.org. My Epilepsy Team is an online support network used by Janet. MyEpilepsyTeam.com Janet runs a Facebook page called Time Out for anyone affected by Autism Spectrum Disorders or ASDs. And if you're just looking for more information about epilepsy, Epilepsy Action is a good place to start. The website is epilepsy.org.uk All the links I've mentioned will be in the podcast description. For more from The Blind Spot, go to our website at blind-spot.net. All of our content is found there, be it articles, videos or the podcast archive. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at mail at blind-spot.net. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Blindspot.net is our handle. And if you haven't done so already, follow the podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you once again to Lewis McHale for providing the music. Find more of his work at lewismchale.bandcamp.com or on Facebook as Lewis McHale Music. Thank you for listening. Talk soon.